MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The volume. Colin Coward Podcast presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. No better place to bet the action than on FanDuel Sportsbook during the football season. There's a lot of reasons. It's America's number one sportsbook. Incredibly easy to use. Super safe. Totally secure. Super fast payouts in as quick as two hours. You're not going to get that anywhere. Also, same game parlay bets. Live betting. It's the best. Hey, if you're new... Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app. I did it in 15 seconds. Get started now. Sign up. Please use the promo code Colin so they know we sent you. Please use the promo code Colin, C-O-L-I-N. FanDuel Sportsbook app. Sign up. You know, one of the things when I looked over your bio, and it probably speaks to a lot of who you are because lots of people drop out of college. And they're called people who struggle with math. You dropped out of college very quickly. So I think it takes, you know, Bill Gates did. It takes a certain amount of independence and courage to do that. I couldn't have done that. I didn't have enough confidence. If you could, Michael, go back that week or that moment. And I don't know if it was an epiphany, but did something frustrate you? Were, were there caps? Were there, were you, did you feel like you were being boxed in? You know, for me, I was always a terrible student. I was always an awful athlete, but I was good at one thing. I always loved to work. And any variation of business was like what I loved to do as well. Right. That was the way I competed. And so I actually only went to college because I made a commitment to my mom and dad after I nearly went bankrupt a couple of times in high school. Right. And uh, my dad helped me once and said, look, I'll do this, but you have to agree to go, go to college. So I went to college. The problem was by the time I got there, I was you know, doing so well buying and selling closeouts. 
like, yeah, this, this isn't for me. So, you know, I'm going to give them the money back. I'm going to go full-time in business. So you've expanded into spaces that some are obvious, like from the sports apparel, you move. And then you recently said sports gambling. And I thought, all right, how is he going to, you know, synchronize all these? So take me to the thought, because a lot of your apparel stuff, uh, you know, like lids, like and, and different, you know, I've watched Amazon grow. I, like, I, I get it. When they went into the Washington Post, I was like, that's kind of a left turn, isn't it? Now I get their strategy. So you go into gaming. How does it fit? Yeah. So I really think about what's a sports fan want. I think you really think about everything through the lens of your customer, the sports fan, what's in their best interest. I think there's really not another company today who's working to build a really end-to-end digital sports platform. So you as a fan want to go to a place, you know, can you one day watch live games? Can you bet on the games as you're watching the games? Can you, you know, buy the jersey or the hat of the player you like? Can you get a collectible from that, you know, whether it's a trading card, physical, digital NFT? You know, do you want to get a ticket for an upcoming game? So we really want to give the sports fan everything they want digitally in one place. I think that's a massive opportunity. We spent really the last 10 years building, I'd say, a really good experience for the sports fan with merchandise. And we woke up, we said, wait a second, we have close to 100 million sports fans and they do a lot of other things digitally. How about if we could give them everything in one place? And that's really the, the desire we have is to give the sports fan the ultimate digital sports experience for everything they want in one place. There's a lot. Um, I mean, it's not legal to bet sports yet in California. That would obviously, and there's political reasons. And, you know, some conservative states may not lean into it. California's more left-leaning, but there's some politics behind it. So when you look at sports gaming, what inning, timing is so vital in all this stuff. What yeah. inning are we in, in your opinion? Very early. I think we're in the second or third inning of sports gambling. What does it look like to you? Because in Europe, yeah, you know, halftime in stadium stuff. My mom, European. I've always kind You've of grown up with it. You've yeah, seen it. well, I just it's in the culture, and the culture is you can drink with your parents at dinner. My mom wasn't really um, beholden to some of these sort of more rigid sort of you know cultural American realities. So I look at gambling in a stadium, and I'm like, well, they're doing it in England forever, and those fans are crazy. I mean, they yeah. they call them soccer hooligans. Our fans actually. By and large, the nature of our fans, the behavior is pretty good if you look globally. So do you think we're, it's going to be that easy and accessible for fans in five years, 10 years? I think, you know, I think very long term. I feel like even though I'm getting old, I feel like a young guy. My lens is what's a fan want 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now. I think 10 years from now, sports gambling is completely mainstream in most places in North America. I think the experience will also be uh, demonstrably better. And I think that's a great thing. And so for us, you know, we don't worry about how things start. We finish, we worry about how they finish. And this is, you know, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And we're going to make sure to create the best product for sports fans, the best experience. And we have, you know, huge strategic advantages. Today, we have more than 100 million fans that go to Fanatics, you know, every year. And to be able to take that 100 million fans and not only service them with all their merchandise needs and all of their collectible needs, but also with their sports gaming needs is a big opportunity for us. And one that I think we can, you know, service the fan better, do things better for them. And at the same time, have a better business model. So you owned a couple of sports franchises. You moved out of that space. My guess was for the gaming purposes. Am I right? Yeah, it just got, look, it, it got too complicated. Like for me, when I, you know, we bought the Sixers together in 2011. I was the third largest shareholder of the team. It was a great 
experience. You know, I was, you know, pretty involved in the last several years. And I think as fanatics start getting much bigger, we were a $250 million company the year that I bought into the Sixers together with Josh Harris and David Blitzer, who you were kind of the managing partners. You know, this year, you know, will be, you know, more than $7 billion in revenue. And it just based on us now being in the collectibles business in a big way where we have deals with with thousands of individual athletes, with us starting to take bets on the Sixers by the end of this year, neither one of those businesses really worked with being an owner of sports. And, you know, it was great when it wasn't a conflict. And when I saw that it was holding back fanatics, it was immediately an easy decision for me to reach. People, you're, you're, I'm sure you're, you're cash fluid. A lot of people would like to buy Fanatics, and you've held off on that. Are there almost DNA reasons? Are there independent reasons? People that don't sell are often people that want control, don't want to, don't want to answer to yeah. people. Why, why haven't you? Because you would be in this sports now is where the global money, Michael, goes. I mean, somebody once said to me, you know the Red Sox will be there in 100 years. Liverpool, you don't know if a tech company is going to exist. Why haven't you? Yeah, for me, it really gets down to one thing, which is getting started. Like, even though we've gone from a $250 million business to, you know, I think next year we could be approaching potentially $10 billion in revenue, we're just starting. Like, this is, you know, you asked me what inning was sports gambling in. I'd say Fanatics is, you know, we're in the first quarter of the game. I think we have so much potential ahead for us. There's so much to improve how sports fans are kind of serviced by us. You know, there's so many things we're doing where, you know, we're cutting the speed of deliveries in half in our merchandise business. We're doing so many things to improve the collectibles business. Uh, we're going to market the category for the first time. In gambling, I think we're going to create a great experience for, for fans. So for me, like, it's not like there's a little bit of unfinished business. There's so much to do. And that's a blast. Like, I'm so lucky. And I think our 10,000 plus associates, we're all fortunate to work in such a vibrant industry. Sports is a great, you know, industry, as you said. It's a global business. It brings communities together. And um, why would I want to, you know, kind of sell out when I'm, you know, in the beginning of the game? When you buy a company, you do your due diligence. Yeah. But there's probably, there's a secret to every industry. Yeah. Or you buy it and six months later, you're like, wow, collectibles. Yeah. What was the first moment when you were in the business and you went, what? That goes against my instincts. I, I'm surprised this is the business. Yeah. I'd say in the collectibles business, there are a couple things where they just defy gravity and don't make sense to me. <laughs> uh, the first is, you know, Tops, Panini, Upper Deck, all really good companies, uh, all owned, run by good people. You know, we bought Tops earlier yeah. this year. Yeah. But like I heard from so many customers about redemptions. Like we hate when we get a redemption. You buy a box of cards and you get a redemption because, you know, it was too difficult to get the autograph on the card at the time they made it. And so I think the industry had worked that way. We're now looking at this saying, you know what? That's not acceptable. Like, you know what? So many collectors, they hate it. It's a practice they don't like. So we're saying like, how do we eliminate it? And it's just like the mentality of like, we need to do better. You know, another example would be marketing. You know, the industry today spends less than 1% of revenue in marketing. Like, there's so much we can do to bring. I couldn't tell you the last time I saw a commercial for. And and by the way, whether it's a commercial or whether it's more grassroots marketing, there's so little done to promote the collectibles industry, but it's grown and grown and grown. So, like, I look and say, there's so much opportunity to innovate the product. There's so much opportunity to market the product. There's so much opportunity to take better care of collectors. And yet the business has done great. So, for me, it's like. If this business is doing this well, <laughs> treating customers this way, 
you know, without innovating, without, you know, marketing the products, like the sky's the limit for what we can do. So like in a lot of ways, I feel like the business done really well, you know, in spite of not being like, the companies haven't woken up and said like, we're going to be like, you know, Nike is a product and marketing company yeah. that, you know, I think we all look and respect. You know, I think we can take that same mentality into the collectibles industry and it's a massive opportunity. It's interesting. Do you, you know, Starbucks didn't do any advertising forever. It was just sort of, we do coffee, our coffee shops are advertising. So as you touch on that, is there a company that you look at and you say to yourself, because there's different ways to do it. Is there a company that to you, Michael, you ever look at and go, they are really clever? Yeah, well, first of all, I study everything. Like I'm a sponge. Like I barely made it out of high school. We just said, I, you know, I went to college for about six weeks. I'm actually, people, probably people some, some, someone said to me last night, do you speak in any other language? I'm like, I barely speak English. <laughs> Okay. But you know what? I have a little bit of common sense. And so like, I'm a sponge. So I'm always looking at like, what's Amazon doing? You know, how are they pushing the envelope from a customer experience perspective? What's Netflix doing? What's Apple doing? What's Google doing? What's Nike doing? Like, you gotta look at great companies and like get ideas. Like, I mean, you don't need to be the first to create something. What you need to do is figure out, you know, what I have is, you know, we work with the best sports properties in the world, close to a thousand collegiate and professional sports properties globally. And we have this incredible IP that we're fortunate enough to work with to be able to serve sports fans with, but we got to do it better every day. Like we need to go into this with a mentality, like what we're doing today, it's not near good enough. How do we get better? How do we do everything that we do a lot better for the sports fan? And so th there's lots to do. When, when you buy, um, you create, or you bought Fanatics. We really start, really what happened was we had, we operated the five leagues, e-commerce businesses at my old company, GSI. And then, you and then we bought Fanatics and kind of changed the name of the company in 2011. Take me back to the beginning of it. Was there, uh, epiphany is probably the wrong word, but w was there a moment when you said to yourself, wow, this is untapped? Like, the I, if I, when I read your story, I thought, man, I can't believe there weren't thousands of business people going after this. Did you think to yourself, man, this, this business, people just don't understand? No, I had the opposite reaction, if I'm going to be honest. In 2011, when I, you know, sold GSI Commerce, which was my first company, yeah. eBay, and then they said, hey, we don't want to be in the owned inventory business. And we bought Fanax back for them. I actually said, you know what? I just watched two little companies, one in Seattle called Amazon, another in China called Alibaba, that have been literally decimating retail. I said, if I don't completely reinvent this business, we won't be here. We'll be irrelevant. So I actually had, had the kind of like the fear of death. By the way, the fear of death is a great motivator <laughs> to make you figure out how to make things work. Right. And so we did exactly that. We said, you know, how are we going to make sure we have the best assortment? How are we going to make sure that we give the best experience to fans? How are we going to make sure we do things that other people can't do? How are we going to make sure that we just keep innovating to a way that, that you know, unlike most other retail categories that have been, look, Amazon and Alibaba are two of the best companies in the world. Okay. And they do it because they're, they're, they're doing things for their, their customers that others can't do. We took the same mentality and said, look, if we get laser focused in sports, that's a massive opportunity because this is a complicated business. It's skewing tests. We carry more than a million products today. When you focus on one thing, you can do it really well. And again, the great thing is 10 years into it, I think we're just getting started. NFL kickoff is still a couple of weeks away, but you can get in on the action now on the FanDuel Sportsbook with their NFL Super Win Bonus. Right now, anybody who places at least a $50 Super Bowl winning bet gets $5 back for each win your team has during the regular season. Pretty cool. 
So what NFL Super Bowl bet would you make? Can the Rams repeat at plus 1,100? Maybe you think it's Josh Allen and the Bills at plus 600. There are a ton of other future markets available, like team win totals, division winners, player props, so many more. No better place to get ready for the football season than on FanDuel, America's number one sports book, official sports betting partner of the NFL. So if you haven't tried FanDuel Sportsbook yet, download the app, sign up, promo code Colin. Again, get $5 for every win your team has if you bet at least 50 on them to win the Super Bowl. The promo code again, Colin, C-O-L-I-N. 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, and Louisiana. Permitted parishes only. Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 533-42-ARIZONA, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat. Connecticut, 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Indiana, Jersey, and Virginia, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan, 1-877-HOP E-N-Y or text H-O-P-E-N-Y 467-369 in New York, Tennessee. Redline 1-800-889-9789 Tennessee. Visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net in West Virginia. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferreira and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry. Back to Iguodala. Up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What crushes you more, a bad earnings report at Fanatics or a playoff elimination game in the NBA? Which one do you That's not? That's a great question. Um, both are crushing. I mean, I don't like, I, I don't like to lose, but the good thing with me, you lose all the time when you lose, you just, I pick up and I'm like, that was yesterday's news. Let's go. You know, I don't, I'm not looking back. I'm only saying, how do we get better? How do we go forward? But I've had, I've had many of both. So fanatics is B2C. It's a business to hundred percent consumer business. Okay. And we don't want to do anything. We say people call us all the time and say, Hey, do you want to buy this business? A B2B business? We're like, no, we are a business to consumer digital company. If it's not digital, if it's not consumer, we have no interest. All right. Gaming is business to consumer. Yeah. Why does that attract you? Why does B2C attract you? Yeah. You know, for me, it's really about being able to service the digital sports fan wherever they want to be serviced. You're a fan. Yeah. For me, I, I got to tell you, when I think about fanatics in the future and I could potentially watch live sports, bet on them, get the jersey from the player I like, get the trading card of the digital NFT, get a ticket to an event all in one place. That's like an incredible experience. So for me, what we have is one brand and one fan base that we can do so many different things digitally with them. But the most important thing we need to do every day is say, how do we do it better? It's not good enough what we're doing. How do we improve? How do we innovate? Because, you know, I still say like, yeah, we've made a lot of progress and, you know, $250 million last year. I think we could be, you know, approaching $10 billion next year. It's not, you know, it's not good enough. What keeps you up at night? Um, I'm the worst sleep on the planet. I said to my girlfriend this morning, like, I literally need a sleep doctor. Like, I, I could sleep three hours and then I wake up. And no matter how many times I say, don't look at your phone, I look at my phone. I start responding to text messages, responding to emails. Then I look at news. What's going on in this world? You can obviously tell I'm a pretty competitive human being. Yeah. I like to win. I don't really believe in losing, even though it happens to the best of us. So, you know, for me, what keeps me up at night is we're growing quick, not having the wheels come off the bus, not doing, you know, dumb things, self-inflicted things. You know, I want to make sure we're making the big decisions. They're like, look, we're going to fail. You have lots of failures every day in a couple you fail. I want to fail fast. Like, you know, for me, if I'm going to fail, let's do it fast and move on. Let's not have a slow pain for failure. Let's do it fast and get it out of the way. One of, I don't know, the vagaries or, or one of the problems with being rich and powerful is that people are often afraid to confront you or disagree with you. How do you ensure that when you walk into a room, yeah. your lieutenants are willing to say, Michael, I think you're completely wrong on this. Yeah. So first of all, um, I love that. And I create that culture. That's a bad leader 
who doesn't, you know, create the relationships with their with their leaders where they know they have to come and say, like, people come and say, Ruben, this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Like, I'll come up and say, I got a great idea. And if one of my, if any of my trusted people who know me work with me, if they can't sit by me, if someone's a yes man, they're out. Like, I have no interest. You talk about somebody I have no interest in working with is yes people. I want people who are going to make us better, challenge us. And I, every day, you know, we debate stuff. That's like, that's our life. Whether, you know, bantering with my friends, bantering with executives, that's who I am. It's also my personality. I'm pretty, you know, I'm like pretty, you know, down to earth relative right. to, uh, you know, guys build a decent sized business. Yeah. So the best ideas I get are being in groups of people and listening and kind of sponging it. Where do your best ideas come from? We must be like kindred spirits because I would have given you exactly the same answer. I would have told you it's from getting really smart people of different backgrounds around me and then being a sponge and I'll contribute and we can all learn from each other. So people say to me all the way, like someone just said to me last night, like you seem comfortable anywhere. I'm like, I could go in the roughest neighborhood in the world and enjoy talking to people and asking questions and learning. And by the way, watching what they're wearing, what fashion trends are developing, you know, what do they want? What do they need? Um, how can I help them? How can they help me to being, you know, in a, you know, in, in with, with any type of sports fan, like that, that's, that's how I learn. Like I'm a sponge. That's I literally, I said, you, if you watch anything I've ever said, I'm a sponge. My first impression when you walked in is you dress like a young fan and you're 50. And so that's impressive to me because I believe in your business. You have to relate to these guys. Yeah. Okay. Not, not me as much. Right. So you dress as a billionaire, you dress like a fan. I don't know if you ever thought about that. You are in young businesses. You know, 75 year old guys don't wear as many baseball hats. You go to a Mets game, everybody's got one on. So do you force yourself tech, music, people? How do you stay young and twitchy with culture? Because the world we yeah. live in now, it's so fluid, Michael. Like every 15 minutes, there's new tech. Yeah. So first of all, I think you need to be authentic to yourself. Like I dress the way I want. And by the way, when someone will say, hey, you have to wear this to this, I'm just like, I am who I am. Right. Like I don't give a shit. Yeah. Um, and you know, if someone doesn't like me, you know what? I just, you got to be authentic. You got to be who you are. The biggest thing I like, I do love having all different backgrounds around me because that gives us the opportunity to learn from different people and take different perspectives. But look, I have a young mentality. Like I don't like, I, I generally will say as a stereotype, and I'll probably feel bad saying this, I don't like being around old people in general because it makes me feel old versus I like to be around young people that I can learn from, grow from. I won't um, go to Palm Springs because of that. Yeah. I feel old. Park City people ski. And everybody in LA loves Palm Springs. And I'm like, I don't play bridge. It's old people. I go once a year for Coachella. Well, that that's the young. young. <laughs> that's right. Nobody in their 80s there. No, I think that's a real I could have been the oldest person in Coachella this year. <laughs> um, finally, I remember interviewing Phil Knight one time and I asked this question. And my producer was like, that is such a pithy, silly question. But when you can have anything, you know, the old saying, oh, what do you get somebody that has everything? You could have any piece of sports memorabilia you've wanted. I'm, I'm not a sports memorabilia collector. I don't have a press pass I've ever had. But is there anything, like if somebody told me what could I have, I'd say, give me Muhammad Ali's gloves against Foreman and Zaire. That to me was the, one of the first moments as a kid, I was watching a JP Patch's morning show. This is a product that I don't have. This is something you don't have. It's my first memory of me knowing sports is a cartoon on a Saturday morning breaking in and said, Muhammad Ali's beat George Foreman. This is a cartoon show in Seattle. And to me, it was the first moment. I was a huge Ali fan. It was the first sports moment. I was like, well, I'm really into this. I did a book cover mimicking a Muhammad Ali shoot. 
So that to me would be the sports thing. Do you have one? That I want that I don't have. You don't have. Yes. What is it? This is so easy. What do you think I want? That I okay, want? let me guess. Dr. J's, the uniform when he did the dunk over Michael Cooper. Or the... That's a good guess, but you're off by about 30 or 40 years. I want a 2022-2023 Sixers championship ring. Those are hard to get. But you know, that's why I want it. Because, you know, I want the shit that's hard to get. Because that's what makes it interesting. You can't even find that on eBay. It's not currently available on the market. You know what? But you ask me what I want. That's what I want. I've been trying to get my buddy Ryan Rosillo on forever. He's busy. He's got a podcast. And so we have him scheduled for today. And the Donovan Mitchell story breaks. And I, I know exactly what Rosillo's thinking. Coward, I'm not giving you my best shit. So don't expect a lot from me. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought to myself, sometimes you get lucky. So I know you have stuff to do. But I'm going to throw my takeaway on this at you. And you just shoot it down. Is that I understand there's value in who won the trade. But if I think you're a pretty good team, Cleveland, and you got the best player, Cleveland, it falls into the, I don't really care who won the trade because I can't wait to watch the Cavs. Because I thought last year, I'm like, shit, they're, they're a player in a year away. So I don't know who won the trade, but it does feel like Mitchell is kind of what they need. Do you see it that way? Uh, he's exactly what they need, Colin. I mean, this is a Cavs team I liked watching last year. I loved Darius coming out of the draft. It was a little hard because, you know, he was a little... He was smaller. He didn't have a ton of playing time. I mean, honestly, like when you look back at Kyrie's Duke year, you know, he barely played. And then you just realize what a special talent he was. And I'm not saying Darius is, is Kyrie. Uh, in a way, I hope he isn't. Um, but there were some similarities there. And it's it's really apparent that, you know, he's he's a special guard. And Cleveland, I think in a weird way, was like, hey, if Sexton's is going to be out, you know, we can kind of give the keys to, to Darius and, and go. So then on top of that, you get Allen, you got Mobley. So they're doing something a little bit more traditional. So my point is this, is all the Cavs games that I watched, and I watched a lot of them because I just like the young players, their shot creation all fell on Garland at the end of games. It was a joke. And if you go to fourth quarter offensive efficiency where last year, they were 19th in the NBA. And I think in their clutch time, it was even worse. It was so apparent that Garland was just supposed to let to dribble and create all on its own. They bring in Karis LeVert to try to ease that a little bit. And everybody likes Karis LeVert until they get him on their team. They're like, oh, okay. (laughs) This guy's playing his own game here. So if you factor in that, yes, you won the trade because you got the best player, which is what a GM told me when I first started covering the league 20 years ago. He goes, you know, more often than not, you look at the history. When you get the best player, you end up winning the trade. Um, I'm not saying they're going to win the East, but they solved a massive problem because when it comes to shot creation, and we can get into all the Mitchell, who is he, overrated, underrated, and all that stuff. He is a fantastic shot creator. So it is a huge – look, it's the it's the player. He was available, the package, all that stuff. But for what they needed, they needed somebody else that was another threat with a ball in his hands and as a shooter. And that's exactly what Mitchell is. You know, there's been a theory for years in all sports, certainly the Packers, that Midwest teams have to overpay in trades or free agency to get players. I don't know if that's true. But I will say this. Is that um, here's and I, and I go to a couple of jazz games a year. I like Danny Ainge. I like what they're doing. It's a one horse town, so they'll they'll be patient, right? They'll they'll sit it out and be patient. And they've had a lot of success. They've always been fairly viable. But here's the thing I don't love about these total rebuilds. So even Giannis, I think the best player in the league. It took about till year four where you were like, 
whoa, whoa, this, he's getting to a top five player, right? So, you know, just throw LeBron out of it. Most of these guys come out now, these draft picks, they're 19. Forget physically ready. They're just not emotionally ready. So when you do these rebuilds, Ryan, what I don't like about it, you're asking your fans, even if we hit on the draft picks, it's three years after that until you can really go into the playoffs and be viable. Now, you can obviously add pieces, but Danny Ainge tends to be, a, I want to win the trade or I'm not, a making the, I'm not making the trade. And again, Utah is not a big free agent destination. So I understand his plan, Ryan. But man, I, I, I think what you charge fans today, it's a hard sell. And I, you're really good at this personnel in the NBA drafting stuff. I always trust your opinions. But shit, man, it's hard. I got one year of college tape with an overbearing college coach. It feels like there's more misses than ever out of the draft. Yeah, if you start looking at the top 10 in recent drafts, too, it, it's remarkable how many of those top 10 players are on a new team by year two or three. It's more than 50% of the top 10. Like I used to think the later picks in the first round were totally overvalued. And I did talk to a GM who heard me say it like five years ago, where I just started looking at it. And I'm like, you know, you get you trade your guy for like a 20 and a 27, and then it's really exciting. Like, oh, we have three first rounders. If you get a rotation guy in the 20s, you crushed it. Okay. And as I started, no, and, and everybody wants to go like, well, what about Draymond Green and manage it? you like, yeah, man, awesome. Like when Hickey would stockpile all these second rounders and everybody would like act like it meant anything, it didn't mean anything. The second rounders are even worse. So when I started talking about the overvaluing of first round picks, I had a GM who's pretty smart who was like, you know, I don't always agree with you, but because I heard what you said about the first rounders, because that's how we've been running our business now for a couple of years. Like, I don't care. Like, we're a pretty good team. We're generally always a pretty good team. We're a destination. We feel like we're always in play for some guys. And like, why would, why do I care about like pick 22? Like maybe I hit it and it's a cheap rotation guy, but chances are it's like less than a 50% win. So I'll give you a bunch of those. And so the weird thing is now that we've seen all these trades happen, I think a lot of GMs have decided, yeah, I don't care about these picks either. <laughs> like let's, let's go. Like when you think about the Kawhi trade from San Antonio to Toronto, and you're like, all right, so you got DeRozan, who actually is, you know, it's weird. He's an odd player and that he's gotten so much better so much later in his career. He's like in total aberration. Right. Um, and then you throw in Pirtle, who, you know, I sneaky still kind of like a little bit. But if that trade were done today, even with the one year left on Kawhi's deal, knowing that Toronto's probably not a free agent destination, there's at least a couple first, a couple unprotected first thrown into that. And that's just not, that's how quickly this has changed. Uh, but part of me also wonders at times, it's like, do you guys actually want a player back that's any good? Or do you just want to be able to say, oh, I have all of these draft picks? Now, for certain places who are worried about resigning their own guys, then it makes sense. You're right. Utah's probably a bottom three free agent destination. So I'm not even a huge fan of stockpiling right. all this cap space because, and I know Ainge, he's told me straight up years ago when I was in Boston, he goes, you know, this whole, all you guys in the media stockpiling this cap space. He's like, that means I'm waiting around with a plan with no idea of who I'm getting. So he was like, I'm always more into the trades. So the first round movement of the last couple of years is definitely a product of GMs realizing these picks aren't that valuable. But I think it's in a weird way on the other side of the receiving team, they value the ability to say, oh, we have five picks now moving forward. And I'm like, you know, at some point I want a nice player. So if the Shams report was correct that the Knicks offered RJ Barrett in two unprotected firsts, if that's correct, and Shams is better at this stuff than I am, I would take that deal 10 out of 10 times over the Cleveland package because all of these players, like Markman's kind of a disappointment. Sexton, Cleveland didn't want to pay him. 
And now you pay him and it's not a ton of money and it's fine. And then, you know, uh, Agbaji, who, you know, might be a marginal rotation player, you know, who knows? All right, we'll move off that. I want to save your gems. That's all right. Although you were very good there. No, I was going to give you the good stuff. I wasn't. That was the old college game day thing. Like every now and we'd get somebody to come over in the show and then I'd say like, well, what are you hot on? And the guy'd be like, well, we're not supposed to use our best stuff. I'm like, psych, we booked you. <laughs> that is funny. The um, So let's just pivot to uh, the shirt you're wearing, which I, those things sell on eBay. They're like NFTs now. You can just gobble them up. This is my retirement plan. <laughs> um, so I want to I want to touch on the Brady Giselle thing because the story came out that and it was pretty predictable. But I said in my preamble before you, like there are certain things like I kind of know and I don't want to talk about. So the Boston gossip columnists have been on this Giselle Tom fighting shit for a couple of years. And I talked to somebody who kind of plays in that circle. And he's like, yeah, I mean, he made promises and he backed out of the promises and she's pissed off. And it's weird, Ryan, because I'm not a story breaker. Um, like Shams does that better than us. You're you're very good at it. But like there are stories I don't really want to talk about. And I really don't want to talk about Tom and Giselle because marriage is hard and mine's good and it's not easy. And I think to myself, what if Brady caught me talking about it? Yeah, I, Now, that may be delusional, but he used me in some documentary piece, right? And I'm like, so he's heard of me. What if he's dancing around the TV and I'm talking about Tom Brady's marriage? And I'm like, it'd be fucking embarrassing if in 10 years I ran into him at a golf tournament. Am I being weird? I yeah, just don't want to I, talk about his marriage. I think you're being a little weird. Like, I don't, I wouldn't say, hey, you're wrong. You know, that should be your open three days this week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If I were your producer, I wouldn't be like you told because I had heard about it too. But I go, you know, I'm not, I'm not really interested in that part of it. I mean, if I had to do a segment on it, I would say, oh, you're you're mad you're married to the best quarterback of all time, and he's the most competitive person maybe ever. And he's decided, hey, I'm still really good at this and I want to keep playing when the when the season's like five months. So again, that's me maybe being a guy and be like, hey, you you could date somebody in sales. You know, so uh, but again, I don't know that I would do that. Maybe I just did a little bit. Uh, I, <laughs> I, you know, we're in a weird, we're in a weird. This is this is actually really interesting because I think we're at a weird like intersection of like, should we have more sympathy now? Because there's there's more awareness, there's more sympathy with public figures uh, in sports. You know, I was talking to somebody about um, one of the tennis stories the other day, and you know, I was kind of like. Yeah, I mean, this is consumed differently. If, if you say publicly, hey, I'm struggling with these things, um, sure, you find criticism everywhere, but there seems to be less of it of, of the public people, of in the media. There's 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 more sympathy towards it. And I think a byproduct of that is as long as this is simply a family story, it doesn't impact the football at all. I think all of us would have real hesitation to be like, how would I build? What do I build the topic? Like, what's the topic? How am, how am I doing this where the listener's like, oh, cool, here's a different take or a new spin on this. So I think a lot of us would still love to operate with some respect to a family thing, but sometimes it's just it's it's in a lane that we have to address it. I don't know. You know, I was watching them in preseason. So who were they playing the other? I went on vacation, so it was right before I went on vacation. He played a couple series. No vacation, a lot recently. Yeah, yeah, a lot. Rhode Island, shit. People aren't happy where I work. So. But I watched him on a couple series and I'm, and I'm just sitting there casually watching it with a cocktail. And I'm like, 
shit, man. He is freaking good. Yeah. Like, I mean, seriously, crisp, accurate. I mean, like the pop out of his, the, the pop on his arm. It's sick. Ryan, uh, I'm watching all these second people are freaking out. Ooh, look at what Brock Purdy can do. And I'm like, Brock Purdy, you, you can fit him into his back pocket. He's tiny. And I'm watching Brady. I'm like, six, five, big arm, accurate pre-snap weapons. Like, I get it. Listen, I, I don't want to be one of these guys like with an eight, the first number of my age. I will not be on the air. But dude, if I was 69 and I'm still like having a ball and I'm doing this and we're laughing, then I'm going to keep doing it. And Ann's going to go, hey, what about me? And I'm going to say, you know, it's not a terrible life. We've created a great life. I'm just not available on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I'm talking to Ryan Rossillo. You know, it's like I watched that preseason game and I'm like, shit, man, he's so great, right? Totally with you. Um, and, you know, any of us that have had been lucky enough to have friends that have played sports, you know, one of the biggest things is they all want to keep trying to play as long as they possibly can. And it's funny, too. It's like this is the same thing. It happens in our industry, but I do think it happens a lot. When you're young, this sounds very simplistic, but like being part of being young is not knowing any better. So when you're a young athlete, you're like, I don't want to do this. You know, I don't want to be one of those guys. And it's like you have no idea where your head is going to be at at 35. Uh, one of our college roommates told a story. He had a, a thing going on, super rough night out. And he did something and his, his wife got really mad at him. And we were like, when we were in college, did we ever think that you'd be 47 having that kind of night out? And he was like, no. He goes, right. but every now and then, you know, it's it's going to happen, you know, because I, I still like to have a good time. And when people talk about our industry, He's like, yeah, hey, I don't want to be that guy who's over 50. Like when you're when you're 28, you think 50 is so old. And I think the same thing has happened here for Brady. Like, I never thought he'd be able to do this. He changes everything the way I have to think about athletes playing that are a little bit older. Now, I think totally. his pliability is part of it. I think the fact that he's he found a way to play this extremely dangerous position by constantly getting rid of the football and not taking those kill shots. You know, he's just the lack of the accumulation of effect of, of being hit like that. It makes me kind of change, like how open of a mind do I have to be have about like who LeBron can be moving forward? But it's really easy to assume that you know how you're going to think when you're 20 years older. But the thing is, is you're usually always wrong. And most of us, when we're in that, when we are older, we don't go, oh, wait, I feel the exact same way now. Like it sucks to do nothing. I don't want to do nothing at any point in my life. Dude. I sleep seven hours a day. I'm at work for six. Six to noon. That's 13 hours. I have 11 left. I nap for 40 minutes. I work out for about 50. Every other day I do a podcast. I'm sitting around every day thinking, I'm going to go to the YouTube channel. That's what my kids do. Like at some point, Brady's like, retire to what? I got kids by 13 14, Ryan, they don't want to hang out with you all day. <laughs> they just don't. Like, I get it. Um, all right, let's let's pivot to something that you were on years ago. So we, we both, I think we're both, like a, a lot of times in the media, a guy's an NFL guy or he's a college guy. And you were somebody very early. Van Pelt was too. Like, we loved college and we loved the NFL. And we grew up in NFL cities. 
Um, but there's something really addictive about the college game. I can't wait until Saturday. I'm freaking just all fired up for it. And I mean, I sat and watched the entire Nebraska Northwestern game in a bar, Church Street Tavern in Burlington, Vermont. I know. I had a goddamn ball. How great is that so town? How great is that town? Oh, so much fun. I called Rosillo, everybody, by the way. No, first I sent a picture because Rosillo never calls me back. And I sent a picture. He calls me I, in 30 seconds. And I'm like, he always could call me back. I had to entice him. It was like bait. And then you called and you're like, what are you doing there? And I'm like, this is unbelievable. I've never been there. So the point being is I sat there the whole day and I had three and a half hours. I had I was just sitting there eating chicken wings, drinking beer, talking to people. I'm like, oh, my God, I love college football. So we like the draft because it's this conversion of both. The other day, Bill Barnwell, I think it is, had this graph on how awful the Patriots draft. And it was just brutal. And you were on this 10 years ago. We talked about this at Bristol. We were like, why won't anybody talk about it? This past draft. So I have a theory that he got ripped. Not this draft, the previous draft. He let the scouts have it again. And they had a really good draft. And then he said, screw it. I want control back. And he had control of this draft. And it was horrible. I do believe, and this sounds insane. But I do think Robert Kraft, if they're bad and boring, he owns the business. I don't think it's freaking crazy at the end of the season if he talks about, hey, why don't you why don't you retire? Am I nuts? It sounds crazy. But Robert Kraft is cutthroat. I know people who have negotiated with him for the NFL. He's not going to sit there and watch a seven and ten team that's boring for his consumers. They would have to be bad multiple years before that conversation would happen. I mean, we're still talking about despite the draft record, which is abysmal. I mean, it, I don't know. Sometimes I'm always shocked, like whenever I bring it up, and then you'll have like a Pats fan being like, "What about Sonny Michelle in the playoffs?" You're like, "Seriously? That's your that's your grading curve? Like a guy had a nice little run as a first round pick over a couple of playoff games, but I don't know. They probably like JD Drew signing too. So when I Look at the Belichick GM part of it. Like no other GM would ever keep his job. But the problem is you're talking about somebody who's maybe the greatest coach of all time. And it's somebody that, you know, was in Boston during the times you're like, what's Belichick doing? And he was always right. Like I remember the first time doing local radio there. They get rid of lawyer Malloy, the Bills smoke him. They spend the entire week being like this locker room was probably turning on him, saying all the bullshit that we say and we don't know anything. And, you know, you just assume. And Belichick was right. You know, later on it was Adam Vinatieri. Like, how do you let this guy go? And even though Vinatieri still had a nice run, but he was inside, he decided, you know, I'm going to go with Gostowski, and it was completely right. Like, he's done so many things right. The Brady one, though, never made any sense to me, uh, even if he thought he was regressing a little bit. And maybe, as we said earlier, you know, back then, we still were like, wait, Brady's going to play in all 45. But every, 31 other cities keep Tom Brady around with that resume. 31 other, well, I should say franchises, not cities. They all keep him. And Belichick's the one guy who you kind of knew, like, do you like to kind of prove some points sometimes? Do you like to maybe, you know, it's one thing when you grab a wrestler to play offensive guard to say like, hey, look how smart I am. And sometimes it works. Right. And I think he likes to get cute about some of this stuff. So the draft record is terrible. He was asked about it. Was it last season? And he was like, or maybe before the draft this year, they were like, you know, how would you respond? And everybody's so afraid of the guy. 
And he's like, oh, well, you know, we had, we had some pretty good picks in there too. And it was like, oh, wow, listen to you. Like, hey, man, it, the draft record is what it is. You're bad at it. You've been really bad at it for a long time. So I don't know what the dynamic is between the scouts and everything else. I, I think he always likes to do things a little bit differently. The offensive coordinator mystery of like, is Matt Patricia really going to be the guy calling plays now? Like, you why can't you can't bring in somebody else? But he ends up being right so often that he's a really tough guy to question, even if, again, is the draft resume is that bad. So I'm not with you yet because as, as much as the Kraft Bilicek thing, like I don't think they're summering together. Uh, this guy yeah. has put together two decades that are unmatched. You know, the number of division titles, Super Bowl appearances, like he has a resume that is unmatched by every single person that's had that job in the history of this league. So I think it'd take more than one in seven ten season. That's a little disappointing for them to start having those. But kind of here's the so years ago, it was called the Patriot Way. Oh yeah. And the Patriot Way could be defined basically by it's not about you, it's about us. Yeah. Whatever it takes to win. Right. Team first, whatever it takes to win. Brady takes pay cuts. And then Belichick, three years ago, according to Urban Meyer, and Urban like put Bill's name on it, so I imagine it was accurate. Urban Meyer says like three, four years ago, you know, I'm talking to Bill. And Bill said, you know, at this point in my career, I'm just going to coach guys I want to coach. And I thought, whoa, that's about you, not the team. And that isn't whatever it takes to win. And I thought, that's something that, Ryan, that I think about all the time. Like, I never want to be the host who walks in and just says, this is the way I do it. It's not very efficient. I have a real passion for horse racing now, and that's just what's going to lead the show three days a week. Sorry. It's like, no, I I can't do that. That's just not – I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm going to do a show that's going to have some mass appeal. Sorry. I'm never going to be like, I made it. It doesn't matter. Drag racing. Is going to make the show. No, it's not ever. Not one time. And so when I heard that quote, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. It's a little Greg Popovich. Like, dude, it's six years post Duncan. You have the lowest win total odds in the league. Like, I don't think DeJounte Murray is a max guy, but um, he's your best guy. And you couldn't get along with Kawhi. And DeRozan left and had his best career year. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there is part of me thinking – you get really famous, you get rich, you have your legacy, and you're just like, F it. I'm going to do what I want to do. I kind of feel that with Belichick a little bit. Two kids on the staff? That that one, look, if you're telling me Urban said that, and I, again, I've forgotten about it, so I'm not I'm not disputing or anything like that. Um, yeah, that's that's not what it's really about. I mean, the Patriot Way thing was always kind of bullshit and oversold. And there was a weird thing, like when I was in Boston media, it was like the, the football beat guys would like, look, I come to buy and do like a basketball show. And it's like, hmm. NBA, huh? You know, as the Patriots are rolling and you're like, hey, you know, you, you're not on the team, right? Like, you're not on the team. <laughs> so, uh, there was, there was, you know, not every, every member of the media with, with the Patriots side of it, but, you know, there was like, oh, they only bring in certain character guys and all these different things. And then it was like, yeah, actually brought in this guy, brought in this guy, brought in this guy. And so, like, you know, he just wants to go ahead and, and win, which in a weird way, I always felt like, you know, you can try to have 53, Perfect citizens on the team, but there's a really good chance there's guys doing stuff that don't get caught anyway. So, you might as well take a right. couple guys that are cheaper because they've gotten in trouble. I think Herm Edwards once told me, he's like, I could take four of them because <laughs> a 53 man roster, you give me four. He goes, if you give me five, it's too many. He's like, I can handle four guys that are a problem, which I always thought was kind of a funny quote. The, Bob, uh, the Popovich one, though, 
I think that's his refusal to tank. You know, he's talked about it. I respect his position on it. But if I owned the franchise, I'd go, cool theories. It's easy for you with all of these rings to say, hey, that's not how we're going to operate. And now we're stuck in this middling thing with the least interesting roster in the entire NBA. Him not getting along with Kawhi, I think, was Kawhi more on the medical thing. And honestly, now Kawhi at two other stops, I don't think Kawhi is that easy to get along with. So I wouldn't put that one all on Popovich. But it is a, it is, it is very interesting, the, the combo of like as you get later in life, do you, does your priority change and is your priority actually what's better for the franchise long term? Popovich, I think it's interesting discussion. Belichick, it's still too soon. I mean, hell, you know, something goes wrong. I, I think the Bills are clearly the better team, probably the best team in the AFC right. at this point. But I'm also not going to be shocked if the Pats find a way with a good defense, Mac taking a step forward another year. But I just, I don't know. It's, it's Belichick is a really difficult guy to question because it ends up usually working out for him, despite the fact I think he gets really cute about some stuff that to me feels like a waste of time for somebody that's that legendary at the job. Okay, so I always feel like part of it is just – you know, just being annoying, but I always feel like you do get one team as a sportscaster that you're a little bit of a fanboy. And so I didn't grow up in Southern California, <laughs> All right. but I'm a USC guy. Yeah, yeah, you're and I think it, USC. And I think it's funny. Like I, at this point, I'm just leaning into it because it pisses people off so much. <laughs> and I think it's a riot. I saw Chip Kelly at the 900 Club. He knows it. And it's like, whatever. I like him. So um, who is yours? Oh, it's LSU. I, you know, at this point, it's it's not really much of a secret. You know, I feel like coming from New England and going to Vermont that hasn't had a football team since 73, I believe. Uh, you know, I fell in love with college football in a way that I, I didn't really extend. I mean, look, I always loved college football. I loved watching it. You know, my dad, the big game or whatever, but I didn't really have an affinity for anything. There was maybe a little flirtation with Notre Dame as a kid because I love that Tony Rice team and Rocket Ishmael. Um, and then, you know, my first time getting to see Colt McCoy, I just loved I love the kid. Uh, I'm thrilled he's still in the league. He's one of my all-time favorites. And unfortunately, he was on the losing side of the greatest single football game I've ever been to when Texas Tech knocked off number one A&M in 08, or excuse me, number one Texas in Lubbock yes. uh, in 2008. It's the greatest sporting event I've ever been to. Um, and then, you know, I really like Chip up in Oregon. But I'll tell you that uh, the LSU experience the first time, it was a whole nother level, man. It was a whole nother little. I think I've been to 60 plus stadiums, campuses. I've been there for games. It's probably the best part of my entire ESPN run. And so I care about LSU now. Like I care and I watch. I'll pay attention to the little recruiting stuff, but I'm not a psychopath about it. Like I'm just emotionally different with sports because I've been doing yeah. it 20 years. And I'm not saying it's better or worse. It's a little healthier, but I actually miss having that emotional <laughs> mood swing on the line. Right. Like when the Sox, I know, I get it. Yeah. When the Sox would blow a save when I was younger, I, they could blow the save on Monday. I've said this story a million times and I'd still be lingering my head being like, why the fuck they walked the leadoff guy? And it'd be Thursday, you know, it would still be bothering me. So when the Red Sox, I still care about it. You know, I still care about the Celtics. The Pats, I don't really care as much about, you know, if the Bruins are good, I'll, I'll watch a little bit more because I'll talk some hockey with my father as complete casuals on that one. But I'd say between LSU and then I think St. John's basketball, but it's just kind of a bit off the radar and this expansion stuff that I hate. Uh, the first casualty of many casualties, but the first casualty that really bothered me was Big East basketball. It's just not the same. It's never going to be the same again. And I hate it because it was an NBA factory there for a while. And now it feels like a group of five conference, which sucks. But, you know, I still care about St. John's. 
the volume. Make sure to check out the Draymond Green Show. I brought Draymond Green into the volume because one of the more entertaining voices in sports, unique perspective, understands behind the rope, also chops up with guests like Gary Payton, Zach Levine, Tracy McGrady. Make sure, download the Draymond Green Show wherever you get your podcasts, only on the Volume Podcast Network. MTV's official Challenge Podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. 